right? Episode number 28 with Martin Fry. Martin's a great audio engineer living in Nashville, Tennessee. He's originally a Canadian boy from Toronto, and we've known each other for many, many years. And Martin made the move down to Nashville. He's been touring the world with many uh, big, huge artists and keeping himself very busy. So I uh, give him a call. We did uh, a phone interview. It's my first phone interview uh, for my podcast. And uh, we sat and chatted about his uh, life uh, on the road. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Once again, Martin Fry. <laughs> I'm Roland. We're here with uh, Martin Fry and in Nashville, Tennessee. And Martin is a Canadian boy. Where were you? Where were you born, Martin? Uh, born and raised in Toronto. Oh, were you? <laughs> wow, that. Yeah, well, raised in the burbs, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think when I was six months old, my parents moved us out to uh, a brand new house in a brand new subdivision, uh, very close to Clarkson. Um, called Parkwall, which was the first ever uh, entire residential neighborhood built in North America with complete underground service. Wow, that's yeah. a there's a fact for you. Yeah. Um, so, growing up uh, in Toronto and uh, experiencing all of that, uh, of course, uh, you know. You're great audio tech and have multiple talents, but uh, how did you, what was your kind of first step into uh, being an audio guy? Well, the, the, my early beginnings were uh, via uh, music, which I think was a natural progression for me. Uh, both my sisters um, did 10 years at the Royal Conservatory of Music. However, I chose to Guitar is an instrument initially. Yeah, well, why not? Uh, and I still play guitar to this day, actually, and, and bass and tickle the ivories, but I, I've never done it professionally. Uh, but going into high school, I became involved in Radio Clarkson, which was our you know school uh, internal uh, radio broadcast facility, um, and uh, also became involved in handling our little PA system for assemblies and battles of the band, and that was really my first um, immersion into, uh, you know, live PA systems for uh, sound and amplification. Yeah. So pretty early on, actually. Yeah, because I remember uh, in my high school, we had, you know, considering what was out there, they had a fair amount of equipment and there was always a sound crew of some sort and you had to go get it set up and, um, uh, do that whole thing. I did a little bit of that when I was in high school, but, um, uh, you know, it's good, good learning, good start. Probably, uh, most of that was just kind of teaching yourself and figuring it out. I, in my school, there was not really anyone who was a teacher <laughs> knew how to do anything. You just kind of had to figure it out. Was that like that for you? Um, absolutely, absolutely. We actually had uh, a biology teacher, a uh, senior biology teacher, who in his past at that time had uh, toured with KISS. I can't remember exactly in what capacity, but he was uh, the person who was instrumental in uh, acquisition and purchase of the sound system uh, as it was that we had, which uh, consisted of a pair of Altec uh, A7s. 
um, an SAE amplifier, a little rack mount Yamaha six-channel mixer, which had only bass and treble controls on each channel, and that was it. Um, So he was somewhat knowledgeable in that area. Um, But fortunately, we had a a local music store, which you might probably remember and recall some of the gentlemen involved with it, Southdown Music. Oh, yeah. which originally was owned by a trio of uh, in- industry professionals, uh, Brian James, uh, steel player Bob Lucier, yeah. and uh, Melo Coyne, piano player, who uh, were regular residents on uh, uh, local TV programming in Toronto, uh, such as, I think it was the Lonnie Profit Show yeah. was one of them, and I uh, can't remember the other one. Um, but yeah, yeah so, I remember all those guys. I know, I know yep. Mel, and, um, and uh, yeah, I haven't seen Mel for a while, but yeah, that's I remember. I kind of forgot all about that uh, that situation. Yeah, and that's actually how I got my uh, uh, an early opportunity to get professionally involved in audio. Um, at some point, uh, uh, once Brian James became a sole proprietor. And that music store specifically catered uh, to a lot of country and bluegrass instrumentation. I mean, they had electric guitars and basses and stuff too, but it was it was well known for that uh, uh, genre. And uh, Brian, along with an outside partner, uh, purchased a uh, uh, for the time rather large PA system. It was uh, PV's first. Uh, um, Foray into sort of larger format. It was called the Project One system. Yeah, and I still used CS800 amps at that time. It was a three and our passive four-way, uh, and they had four stacks of that. And uh, um, I naturally gravitated immediately towards that. And they took me out uh, on bluegrass festivals. Yeah, and uh, I learned my way around a larger mixing console at that time. I believe it was a PV Mark III. Oh, yeah, I remember those. You, you, you oh, yeah. said the CS800, and I'm thinking, oh, my back suddenly started to hurt. <laughs> right. Those things Even were two of them. Yeah. You, it, was, it was like uh, two concrete uh, cinder blocks tied together equals one CS800. I know. It was crazy. They were certainly workhorses, though, and, and virtually indestructible. I mean, even in Nashville, you find uh, regularly ones on Craigslist from that era. Wow. You know, and they're still working, which certainly says something for the uh, the product builds at the time. Yeah, and those PV Mark threes they were built right into a flight case, right? Yes, yeah. that's right. The uh, lid popped off, and everything was inside. All the XLR ins and inserts and outs were on the rear and you could just put the cover on and bingo handles away you go. It's, it's funny that um, nobody else since then that I remember has adapted that, um, that style, like build it right into an actual flight case. Um, do you remember anyone else doing that? Um, I think the only other one that I recall was the, uh, there was a 16-channel Yorkville mixer. Yeah. Uh, it had a little. Lar- it was kind of the other way around. The uh, console sat in a tray, and the lid came off. Yeah. Uh, but that's the only other one that I recall from that era. You're right, though. Most other consoles were a separate piece of hardware that went inside, 
uh, you know, a custom-built road case. Yeah, it, it's surprising because I think I've always thought about it because I know we, uh, uh, the family, we had a couple of those, and, and it was uh, it was really handy. You just plopped the lid on and away you went. Um, and it, yes. It yeah. was, you know, probably not as easy to get into, um, but um, I never really, at that time of uh, doing audio, I wasn't really taking anything apart, so I never really had to take one of those part to service or anything, but uh, um, I think that would be a, that's kind of a smart idea for someone to uh, to do that again. But anyways, there must be a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we actually did have to take one apart. Um, I don't know if you remember Bluegrass Canada out at Court Cliff Park. Yeah. Uh, it was due north of Burlington. Well, we did that bluegrass festival for a couple of years, and one year we had a big rainstorm blow through on a Sunday morning right in the middle of uh, the gospel uh, portion of the festival, which was usually 10 to noon on Sunday mornings. And, uh, of course, we we, uh, we we didn't unplug the console, but we certainly put the cover on it and uh, pulled the... Uh, the sideboards down on the mix tower, but when we went back an hour later, we found water had gotten into that console. Oh, no. So we literally undid the screws, uh, you know, the uh, the hardware rails that uh, attached the mixer into the bottom portion of the case, lifted it up, poured the water out, got a hair dryer, blew it dry, put it back together, turned it on plugged it in, turned it on, and it worked perfectly. Nice. Yeah, I think, you know, over the years, kind of, I wouldn't say PV got a bad rap, but they weren't, um, you know, they weren't known as top level, but their stuff back in those days, they just, it just worked, and it was, you never had issues with them, and it was built like a, you know, a tank, and um, I've always had lots of PV stuff uh, for years, and and the things I still have still work. Yeah, yeah. And you, I, I often see items from that era and even previous to that era for sale on Craigslist that are still 100% working. Yeah, that's <laughs> fabulous. So yeah. it, it must have been interesting for you um, coming from high school into working live sound and then into bluegrass because I'm assuming probably a, a younger kid going through school in Toronto didn't get a whole lot of country input. Is that right? Um, well, as a rule, no, I would say no. I would say that wasn't the norm, but because of my association with Southbound Music, um, I was exposed to uh, uh, great country music, live country music bands um, you know, like Whiskey Jack and uh, some of the other, you know, the, what, the Hamilton Haunt uh, bands <laughs> and first great bluegrass players. <clears throat> I mean, mixing those bluegrass festivals early on, we had uh, a combination of top level U.S. and Canadian talent. So, uh, I mean, we're talking bands like uh, Bill Monroe, Dry Branch Fire Squad, the Bluegrass Cardinals. Uh, the Lewis family, Crary Hickman, Berline. Um, so I was exposed to mixing top level bluegrass talent, uh, both Canadian and U.S. Uh, uh, Ladies' Choice Bluegrass Band from uh, Nova Scotia. Um, and uh, at that time, 
electric instruments were still very much frowned upon in live bluegrass music. Yeah. You just didn't see them. So, you know, turnovers were two minutes or less, and you had either four pairs, five pairs, or six pairs of microphones of Oakland and instruments spread across the deck, and you either subtracted or added in between acts as required, you know? Yeah. Um, so everything was done via microphones. Uh, so I think um, that was absolutely excellent uh, training, uh, you know, for my ears uh, very early on as far as figuring out uh, which frequencies were good or musical, which frequencies were bad, yeah. feedback, um, and all that kind of thing. And and the funny thing is, I mean, by that age, I was already a certified rock and roller. Um, but the sheer level of musicianship, which still, uh, to this day, um, I was a bluegrass fan, I became a bluegrass fan for life. You know, and certainly went on after I left Canada to move to Nashville, uh, you know, worked with, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, American country music talent as well. Yeah, it's, it's, you really hone your skills when you've got just pure acoustic instruments and knowing how to make that translate as clean and, and pure as possible uh, to everyone on listening. And then you got those challenges of, like you mentioned, feedback and, um, I mean, you get, you got to really figure that stuff out when you're doing those type of shows. I think I remember I did one show with you. Um, was it boot? Oh, we did. Um, you you called me to do. Was Tottenham? Was that what? Do you remember? Oh, Tottenham Bluegrass Festival. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I did one weekend, and that, that was actually uh, well over a decade later. Yeah. Um, I was working for a sound company full time at that time, a band world owned by Bob Spencer. Yeah. And uh, I had doing a country festival out near Lindsay. <clears throat> we had a bluegrass band on the bill early in the afternoon, and I mixed that band. Um, and a gentleman came up to me, and with a uh, uh, with a French Canadian accent, and he says. You know, there uh, you do a, a pretty good job of mixing the bluegrass, eh? And I looked over, and uh, I thought to myself, "Oh my gosh!" So, are you Peter? Peter Devoe? You remember Peter Devoe? He was a, a bluegrass promoter. Yeah, yeah. He was actually the promoter of the Tottenham Festival. And he says, "Yeah." And he says, "I'm Martin Fry. I used to work for Brian James at Southtown Music during the bluegrass festivals." He said, wow, and he went on to told me that he promoted the Tottenham Bluegrass Festival and they had problems with the sound. Uh, would I be interested? And I said, yeah, I would. Uh, I'm not really into camping anymore. <laughs> no. I work for a sound company. He says, well, uh, you know, put together a package for me. And uh, and uh, so I went to my boss, Bob Spencer, and I said, hey, there's this Bluegrass Festival three days, and I believe, I think it was in June. Um, you know, what, what it cost for me to, to give me a small rig to go do that. And, uh, of course, you know, it was more than double what they were used to paying. Yeah. Um, because many of the smaller bluegrass festivals, uh, just largely used hobbyists who, you know, who owned a sound system and, and weren't really, you know, professional. Um, so we thought about it and I told him I'd have to put, you know, I'd have to put me up in a hotel Ended up doing it the first year, and I remember when I was tuning the PA, somebody came over the hill, and I had I, I, uh, I had uh, an Alison Krauss CD on the system, 
Um, his son came over the hill and walked down. He says, you're not the fella that was doing the sound last year, are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And I said, no. Um, but uh, that turned into, uh, I think I ended up doing that festival every year for four or five years. Huh. After that, that was my little holiday getaway at the beginning of the busy season, you know, June. Yeah. For the weekend, mixing bluegrass, and of course it was the same format. You had a mix of uh, Canadian bluegrass talent and 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 uh, U.S. Uh, headliners. And in fact, uh, I ended up running into who would become a longtime Nashville friend, uh, Randy Coors, um, who's a absolutely well-known, stellar musician and Grammy award-winning uh, record engineer, recording and mixing engineer here in town. Uh, and he was playing with. Uh, uh, Continental Divide, Scott Vessel and Continental Divide. Oh, yeah. And my buddy Mike Holder, who says hello, by the way, excellent. Um, had said, Hey, my buddy Randy Corsi had moved to Nashville a couple of years before I did. I uh, said, uh, You say hello to my uh, my buddy Randy. He's uh, playing Dobra with uh, Scott Vessel. And uh, I did, and uh, we're still friends to this day here. I've, I've watched his uh, studio grow from when he bought a uh, broken-down little laddie house in a certain part of town here, and his, has uh, built up his uh, business over the last 20 years. Um, so that was kind of a uh, a bit of a foreshadowing of what was to come as well. Yeah. So let's, let's zip back uh, a little bit again. So you were... Um back to when you first started doing the bluegrass festivals um, with Mel's um, company and all that. And where'd you head off after that? What was your next step after that? Well, I, I really got my first road gig again through Southbound Music. Um, there was a, an R&B band from Montreal who had moved to Toronto and two of the guys lived right up the street. Actually, both of them lived in between where I lived and the music store. And uh, they wanted to rent a PA. So we took uh, two stacks of that PV Project One system, yeah. and I went on the road with that RV band. Um, and uh, th that was going to set up virtually the next decade of my career. I spent three years mixing them on the road. That was back in the day when you could still do a week or two weeks in a venue. Yeah. And there was a band house involved. And, you know, those days are all long since gone. Uh, but that put me into an entirely different uh, genre of uh, music, and uh, and I was still a rock, totally a rock and roller at that time. Yeah. But uh, I was so completely into uh, immer immersing myself into every type of music I possibly could. So uh, I mixed them for three years, and then uh, was offered a job mixing a uh, local R&B band in Toronto uh, called George Oliver and Gangbuster. Yeah. which was a full-on R&B band with a three-piece horn section. So I mixed them for a couple of years into the, the mid-'80s, um, and then George uh, got uh, the house gig at a place called the Blue Note um, up on uh, Pears Avenue in Toronto, um, and he threw my name into the hat, and that would be uh, my first house gig ever. And that was an R&B dinner show nightclub that had all first-rate uh, talent, uh, U.S. headline talent as well as Canadian. Um, the bands would still come and play a week at a time or two weeks at a time. 
Um, and I, I held that job for about uh, three years uh, before I, uh, I moved on. And that, that was absolutely fantastic. I did a lot of recording there. I, I would bring my TX uh, 3440 in and roll tapes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of which I still have all those tapes. Oh, wow. That's, um, yeah. Yeah, that's when you get those house gigs like that, um, those are really great for honing your skills because it's, it's neat when you've got the same PA, uh, I imagine there was a house PA in there, was there, um, that everyone used or was yes, it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. So, you know, that typical situation when you have a house PA, but different acts coming in performing and how different everything sounds per band. Um, I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm always still amazed at that. Or, you know, you have a, uh, you know, a house kit. Um, I've talked about this before and, and, you know, someone will sit down on it and you think you got it dialed in and then another drummer will come and it's like, well, how come this kit sounds so completely different? And, and it's an interesting practice and, and, and teaching environment for, you know, how much sound comes just from the player itself. Um, and just when you think you've got something figured out, you know, someone else behind the wheel will just make everything sound completely different. Absolutely. And that's, uh, one of the, uh, that's one of the beauties of uh, live music and uh, being a musician and playing. Um, I, I like to think that uh, the quality of sound that emanates from a source is not necessarily because of the instrument or the amplifier, but it's a combination of the heart and mind of the player and their level of uh, expertise, yeah. you know? And uh, there, there are so many nowadays that actually what I like to call a term that Mike Holder taught me is they transcend their instruments, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, the, the absolute virtuosos that, that we all know uh, and love, and they could walk into any environment, pick up any instrument, and make it sound absolutely wonderful regardless of what it is, you know? That's good. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, you're right. Absolutely yeah. right. I totally get that. So you had a house gig there for uh, a few years and uh, three years, three years, yeah. And yep. and then I, I left that and went on to go freelance, uh, and that's how I ran into uh, uh, Bob Spencer at Band World in around 1990. Um, I was doing a uh, a half, uh, not a not a halftime concert, an after show concert for the Hamilton Tiger Cats at Ivor Wynn. Yeah. Stadium, and I was doing some freelance work for Kevin Lamb over at Musician Supply, who owned an Adamson PA, yeah. um, and an earlier uh, Canadian-made, uh, of course, now long since internationally famous and branded uh, Adamson uh, PA speakers. Uh, but uh, I needed to rent a couple extra boxes for that stadium show because the stage was set up at one end next to the tiger cage, so we had an entire field to cover. Oh, yeah. So I did a little research and found that Bob was the closest guy that had some Adamson boxes. I think Westbury Sound at the time had Adamson inventory as well. But Bob rented me the boxes, and uh, I did that halftime show was with Kalita. Oh, actually. great. Do you remember Kalita? Oh, for Kalita? sure. Yeah. And Gord Lemon, who would later become um, uh, married. Uh, they got married. To... But I did that halftime show, and that's how I met Mike Holder. Oh, he was really? the multi-instrumentalist steel player. She had hired him to do steel, electric guitar, slide, and everything else in the band. That's how we met. Yeah. And uh, very shortly thereafter, Bob invited me to uh, mix a uh, 
Canadian Armed Forces music tour, like a USO tour, our version, a Canadian version of the USO tour, uh, over in the Middle East over the Christmas holidays. And so I, I did that. And that was over uh, in Germany uh, and uh, Israel. Um, and after we got back, he offered me a position at his company. And, uh, of course, I I accepted. And I worked uh, for Bob at Bandworld uh, well into the mid-'90s, I think probably till about 1996, where you know I was exposed to a bigger... Uh, spectrum of uh, sound systems, uh, better quality equipment, uh, more modern equipment. And, yeah. You know, I was there when the first digital crossover from uh, Brooks Siren Systems uh, w- was released. We got that one in the shop and got to test it. Um, you know, and we did all kinds of level shows, everything from bars to outdoor festivals to, uh, you know, concerts for the Argonauts. We did a number of uh, halftime concerts uh, for the Argos in the in the uh, Sky Dome at the time. Okay. You know, things like the Bluegrass, uh, uh, the Blues Brothers, uh, Larry Gowan, all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and so that was an absolutely terrific uh, learning experience. And by the time I got into band world, I was also offered opportunities uh, for uh, further education. You know, in 1990, I attended my first Meyer Sim system seminar it wasn't actually the class it was a seminar sponsored by gear audio yeah. and that really tweaked my interest in the uh the, the finer workings of uh, uh sound system design and tuning yeah um and in fact in the late 90s uh uh probably about eight or nine years later i attempt i attended uh sim school Oh, yeah. And became Sim2 certified. I was fortunate enough to have uh, uh, Bob McCarthy as the instructor, who was the original designer of uh, Sim, yeah. Yeah, which I think came out in 1984 originally. Um, but I will say this: still to this day, uh, that week-long 40-hour class, the end of which uh, you're required to write an exam, which you needed to pass in order to get certified, um, is the best nuts and bolts audio training class uh, I've yet uh, taken to date. Um, I had absolute epiphany after epiphany. I had so many light bulbs go off during that class, things that I sort of knew but didn't really fully understand. And uh, boy, by the time that class was over, I was absolutely, uh, I would say, I achieved a new level of confidence and depth of understanding of the nuts and bolts of loudspeaker physics, you know? Yeah. Which um, makes a, a big difference when you're behind this, you know, behind the console, that all makes sense. And yeah. 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 And fa- oddly enough, within a year, an opportunity presented itself and I moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2000. Yeah. That's, I remember when you, you, you made, that move and uh um that was really great i mean there was not a whole lot of engineers heading down there from canada um and uh i was like oh gosh you're heading down to to nashville i thought that was a a really smart and and, and great move obviously it turned out really well for you but uh was it a little scary heading down there or is it did it feel pretty good oh well absolutely i mean I sort of, I would just, I would uh, compare it to my parents, who uh, were immigrants. 
they immigrated from Germany on a set, on another continent. I mean, they completely left their homeland, went across the ocean, yeah. and started from scratch in a new place. And really, although I was only crossing a border south, um, it was really very much the same thing. I mean, I was, you know, uh, starting over after over 15 years in the business again because nobody knew me down there. Uh, or who I was, what my level of skill was. And uh, so I did everything the right way. I joined the local 149 uh, in town, um, and that afforded me uh, quick access to a uh, one-year work visa down in the States. And the management uh, of the band that I went to work for, who actually Mike Holder, (laughs) got me that gig. Oddly enough. So who was that? Uh, because he'd already been down there for two years. There was a, a group called the Warren Brothers. Oh, okay, I remember them, yeah. Um, you know, they've had uh, singles with Tim McGraw, with, uh, you know, Red Solo Cup, just are a couple of examples. So, you know, the mailbox money absolutely went through the roof for those two guys. I oh, mean, yeah. super talented uh, performers. I mean, my first year down there, uh, you know, we were largely working the bar and fair circuit, um, but in 2000, uh, we went on the road with uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill on the Soul to Soul 2000 tour. So that was really my first experience on a major headlining uh, a country tour as a support. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Brad and Brett were f- uh, personal friends of Tim and Faith. They toured with him before in the past. So it was kind of a natural shoe-in. Um, you know, Claire Brothers at the time was the vendor, and in fact, they still are for Tim yeah. uh, McGraw, um, absolutely. And that afforded me the opportunity to make some absolutely terrific, um, you know, high-level connections uh, in in the, in the pro audio business down here. I made lots of friends. I remember the RF Tech we had between Tim and Faith. It was something like. 65 channels of wireless and a fellow by the name of Wally Bigby was the RF tech on that super, super nice guy. And also a huge bluegrass fan. So, you know, imagine that we got off uh, on a great start and he actually uh, gifted me a copy of uh, smart live. Um, I can't remember the version back then. That was much earlier version, but uh, you know, after all having attended sim less than a year and a half before, you know, now I had my own, and, and SIM was prohibitively expensive for a solo guy like me. I mean, it was a lot of money to own a SIM right back then. Yeah. Um, but uh, so now I got to attend smart training and learn how this stuff works and yeah. how it's, you know, interpret uh, data, um, which is the most important part of, of running uh, acoustic analysis software is, is how to correctly interpret uh, data and put it to use to optimizing, you know, a large scale sound system or a small one. Yeah, for sure. So what, what was it like going on that first big tour on the, with, with Tim and Faith and and compared to what was happening in Canada, obviously it's, you know, bigger scale, but did you find there was much differences in crew or the way they worked or uh, anything like that compared to what you're used to up here? Not really, other than the fact that, of course, Claire Brothers uh, was arguably the largest audio production company in the world. Um, You know, offices in Europe, Australia, Japan, you know, all all over the planet. 
Um, but the uh, the crew were staffed by you know first rate uh, technicians uh, all uh, from top to bottom. Um, you know, which uh, the big sound companies in Canada, uh, like Solotech and uh, in Toronto, uh, the big one was uh, Westbury, and we had out west uh, sound companies. Um, you know, it was all very uh, A1 level staffing, just on a much larger scale. Yeah. You know, so it was a super opportunity for me to learn. And since I was mixing a support act, we didn't even have to be in the building until mid to late afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> but I took advantage of that. I'd be there every morning for load in, watch how everything goes up, see how everything's wired, uh, you know, assist the setup in front of house. Um, you know, I just uh, took a full advantage of the opportunity and uh, immersed myself into it and uh, made some, uh, again, career-long, uh, you know, professional friends and, and uh, affiliations. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, you have to take advantage of those situations. I think some people don't. Um, and it's very, you know, very important, as we know, uh, in this industry is relationships is kind of everything. The other thing I found down here is I had a lot more opportunity for expanding uh, my professional acumen because uh, manufacturers, uh, of course, since the demographic uh, and and the way uh, the population density here, manufacturers training classes were much more available down here. Yeah. You know, so I would, uh, you know, in between stints during the week, I'd go to uh, Sennheiser for finding frequencies, wireless training, uh, you know, attended the Yamaha PM1D training and got certified, you know, Avid uh, Venue Profile C48 training, Smart Live training. My, I formed a relationship with Buford Jones, uh, who was Faith's uh, front of house guy. I mixed uh, the Warren Brothers every day on his console on that tour in 2000. Yeah. Uh, and I became, uh, started playing golf with him. And, uh, of course, Meyer had their uh, touring division office at Soundcheck here in town. And uh, Buford uh, was the director uh, of uh, national training, ready to go on worldwide training. Um, so became, you know, had the opportunity to attend all those classes uh, via that. That's great. Yeah, you have. Which, again, again did... Uh, uh, Nothing less than uh, expand my horizons and understanding uh, of loudspeaker uh, design and physics, and uh, also keeping up with the latest technology. Every time a new digital console came out, man, I was gung ho to attend the training class. Oh, yeah. You know? Which largely you have to do if you want to be viable in the industry and keep up, you know. This would really pay off down the line. Um, I mean, I spent seven years on and off mixing the Warren brothers did three, uh, well, one Tim and Faye tour and two Tim's, uh, Tim McGraw tours mixing the Warren brothers, but on breaks in between, I started mixing, uh, other country acts. I did a two and a half year stint mixing Tanya Tucker, yeah. uh, who had an absolutely stellar band. Um, I mean, it's like the easiest gig in the world, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, just because everything coming from the stage was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it was like, well, all I have to do is trim gains and push up faders. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like um, yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, and also Sarah Evans on an Alan Jackson tour. <clears throat> I popped in and, and mixed a run of shows uh, 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 again. So really, I just went from mixing to, to, to mixing on much bigger scale sound systems regularly. Um, you know, for a amount of years. Uh, in in around 2004, uh, via the Warren Brothers, we were out on a McGraw tour, and there was a new act up and coming called Big and Rich. Yeah. And uh, I had uh, I had known already almost a year in advance that they would be uh, the main support on the Out Loud tour in '04, and of course Brad and Brett, the Warren Brothers, were going to be on that tour regardless. Uh, and I tried pulling every string and every connection I had to get that gig so I could mix both bands, oh, yeah. you know, uh, on the support tour, and it didn't work. Yeah. So a couple of days before the tour started in 04, we left uh, with our tour bus and trailer and stopped in Mayberry uh, to film an episode of Barely Famous, which was a CMT show, the Warren Brothers uh, TV show they were shooting, and we did an episode there. And the night before... Uh, we started the tour in Virginia. I got a call from Big and Rich's tour manager, who I'd known because he was also uh, uh, Sarah Evans' tour manager and guitar player. Yeah. And he said, Martin, how would you like to mix Big and Rich? And I'm like, what? What happened? Well, I can't go into details now, but I need an answer pretty quick. And I'm like, well, let me think about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, awesome. I literally jumped in on the top of the tour entirely unexpectedly, mixing uh, both uh, the main support and the support to Big and Rich. And on top of that, Tim's tour manager, uh, Robert Allen, who's Rick Allen's brother, a uh, drummer from uh, Def Leppard, yeah. um, said in his English accent, Martin. Uh, you know, we have the Budweiser VIP thing every day. I'd like you to mix Tim on that, if you wouldn't mind. Just give me a number. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, I'm now mixing both the main support and I'm mixing Tim's acoustic set right before the show. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, every yeah. day uh, in the Budweiser VIP tent, you yeah. know. So um, I really set myself up for, uh, you know, triple dipping which well, that was turned into a once-in-a-lifetime a op opportunity, you know? Yeah, that doesn't happen very uh, But often. I ended up getting the, the, the Big and Rich gig. Two weeks into the tour, they, they said, well, do you want to mix? Uh, we'd really like to have you out as our front house guy. And I accepted, and that turned into a nine-year stint um, mixing Big and Rich uh, on and off because there were breaks in between. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, you just... Same thing. That's the relationship thing. You just never know what's going to be around the corner, and you get those relations, and um, they all pay pay off in the long run. Oh, it's it's super super uh, important, you know. And then when there are breaks, it also offers you know affords you the opportunity to to, to do other things, which I absolutely did. Uh, I mean, I mixed the Warren Brothers on and off for seven years until they stopped touring. Uh, <laughs> Halfway through that period of time, I started with Big and Rich, um, and halfway through that one, when there was a break, uh, you know, uh, did One Republic's world tour in 2008, you know, uh -huh. as both production manager and front of house, and that, that was, you know, uh, uh, due to a break, and that was also via connections I 
made. Uh, and also, I will say this, the only gig so far in my career that was directly as a result of my resume. Oh, really? Yeah, that... yeah, yeah. Which I always keep up to date every year, two, three times a year I update it. In fact, I updated it just before we got on the phone today. Okay. Um, yeah, but that was the first and only gig I've ever gotten that I know of directly from my resume. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's funny because you, you get so used to doing uh, shows where you get recommended or people just know you, and then you have to throw a resume, and it just seems odd because it's not something... I know I had to do something uh, quite a while ago. They wanted... Uh, they were looking for... Uh, a fiddle player for some type of uh, TV spot of some sort. So they uh, uh-huh. they wanted you know the full resume. It's like I, I don't have a resume. <laughs> I've never done a resume before. And then you had to sit down. And you had to think. It's like oh gosh, I don't think I even know how to do this. Um, but yeah, in in this world, uh, I mean, like you said, it's important to have it and have it on hand. But um, it's not something you you have to pull out very often. It, it, and that's absolutely the truth. But it's really important to always have it updated just in case because you never know when the gig you've always wanted is going to suddenly appear out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect yeah. sense. So obviously uh, you're working with those groups for a long time and then uh, uh, you got the Lone Star gig. Was there anything in between there? Um uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I mean, I did a year with One Words Public, the, the, the first ever full war, world tour. You know, I went to Europe three times that year in different capacities. Uh. <laughs> you know, the Far East, the Asia MTV Awards. I mean, we did every award show imaginable yeah. um, that, uh, that year. Uh, and I ended up, they took a year off to do their next second record, and I went back out with Big and Rich, oddly enough, believe it or not. Um, So it's just, again, the the whole touring cycle, it does go in cycles, and there is time off. Uh, And uh, me, I've always been a work guy. You know, I, I, I... you know, no gig is too big, no check is too big, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. Um, And it, it it also keeps you sharp. Uh, so at any rate, um, oh, the other thing, One Republic was nominated, had a Grammy nomination in 08 for Best Live Performance as well. The Grammy committee came out to a show in Atlanta and, uh, that happened shortly, uh, thereafter. Excellent. Um, so what was that so like? That led uh, to another couple of, I'm sorry. I was going to ask you with One Republic heading over, to Europe and Asia, what were those experiences like compared to what you're used to in, in Canada, United States touring? Uh, was that a different ball of wax there or was it just end up kind of being the same thing? Well, it, it certainly is from a production management point of view, uh, because as production manager, I have to advance everything that's related to the production. Uh, things like, uh, renting tour buses, um, Venue advance, backline advance, sound and lighting advance, labor advance. I mean, everything that's uh, associated directly with the day of show production uh, that the tour manager doesn't do uh, and cover. Yeah. Uh, and there were some interesting obst- obstacles. Uh, 
some of which are in the Far East, and which I would, within a couple of years, find out too in South America when I missed uh, Alan Parsons uh, for a four-year stint. Um, advancing international stuff can be a little more challenging. You've got to get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning in order to get people on the phone right. or you know, information flowing both ways via email. Uh, to other parts of the world, because in Europe you have a six, seven, eight-hour time difference. The Far East is twelve to fourteen hours, depending on where you are, yeah. you know, or the South Pacific. So uh, that, uh, there are challenges involved, uh, but also the scale of touring. I remember when we went to do the Asia MTV Awards, which was uh, sort of in the middle of a, a Far East, uh, South Pacific run. Uh, it goes like this, uh, five hour flight Nashville to, um, LAX in Los Angeles, six hour layover, 16 hour flight to Singapore, one hour layover, hour flight to Jakarta, and then drive straight to the first gig. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, the old saying sleep is for beginners is not without the, merit so and then uh and then after the show you've got three hours to lobby call at the hotel to fly to uh kuala lumpur so you you've been up for almost two days already yeah and you're thinking to yourself hmm if i go to sleep what are the chances of me waking up with any alarm or even the hotel you know wake up call so what do you do? You go on the internet and try and stay up for another three hours <laughs> just to uh, so, so you don't you know miss a flight or miss lobby call. Yeah. Um, so you have to really be conscious of uh, um, organizing and reserving your energy for for when you really need it. Um, because that kind of a touring schedule, it's not so much the touring as it is. The transport, the transport. When you fly a lot, it eats up an awful lot of time. And me, for one, I've never been good at sleeping on airplanes. Yeah, me either. I can't. I can't do it at all. So that that must have been, uh, you know, obviously tiring, but just a world crazy amount of experience. Uh, uh, you know, handling all that, especially I think once you start getting into those type of logistics, uh, that's another whole skill set that that sets you up for you know, success, um, you know, for anything you're doing. It is, and fortunately, uh, fortunately for me, I've always been of the philosophy of uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. There are no stupid questions. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I always drew on my uh, circle of colleagues and and friends to find out how to do things the right way. In fact, I got bailed out of a festival in Singapore by uh, Lee Morrill, very well-known Canadian sound engineer, uh, who now makes his home in Nashville as well. Uh, but uh, he was over there with Nora Jones, and I said, man, the backline companies don't have, like, guitars. Uh, they've got amps and keyboards and drums and all that. He says, well, I'll tell you what, Martin, I know this guy who owns a music store uh, in the city of Singapore, and if you call him up and drop my name and get his family some tickets, I'm sure he'll hook you up. So I did that. <laughs> I got all the guitars and basses I needed awesome. for that festival uh, just by hooking him and his family up for uh, tickets to the festival. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you have to be resourceful and you really have to manage your contacts and, and uh, uh, keep up 
relationships, you know. So uh, me, I like to figure things out on my own as best as I can until I absolutely need help, you know. And you want to be able to have that favor to call in when you need it most. Favors are not to be wasted frivolously. Yeah. Yeah, I want to save them for when you really, really need them. Yeah. So you got the... uh I forgot you, you mentioned uh, quickly there, you've got the Alan Parsons uh, project there. Uh, that was, that must've been uh, a fun mixing gig. Oh, fantastic. I, I actually, uh, again, through just uh, via recommendations, I stopped in for a couple of shows um, and Alan was suitably impressed. And their longtime sound engineer was, who was largely a, a theater guy, was going off to do some production, uh, you know, Broadway production and sort of became unavailable. So I sort of made myself available yeah. and I ended up mixing him from 2010 till the end of 2013 all over the world as well. And, and many shows with uh, full symphony orchestras, some of which I did not mix the symphony orchestra and some of which I did yeah. as well as the band, you know? Yeah. Once um, you get into the, the, and also, the symphony world, uh, that gets into a touchy mixing situation. I know I, I, I held into that with uh, um, Jim Witter uh, from up here when we, we tour and do some symphony dates. And and it's it's a touchy situation, especially if there's a house guy in there and he always mixes the uh, the orchestra and, and uh, it, you know, you have to kind of play that one uh, smartly because and, and you, you, you want to get your hands on it, but it doesn't always... Make, uh, come around that you're going to be the guy that ends up mixing the actual symphony. Well, yeah, and the only reason I've, I've done it in the past is out of necessity. Yeah. Uh, and you can read between the lines on that one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, fortunately, I, I had experience mixing symphony uh, going back to my Toronto days, uh, working for Bandworld when we did the, uh, uh, what was the big festival down in Oakville there every uh, oh, yeah. late spring um, the, the Oakville Waterfront Festival I yeah, think yeah. you know and everybody always wanted to do the, you know the big rock stage you know farther down Lakeshore and I'm like no oh, give me the symphony stage right down in uh, you know the park at the, at the mouth of uh, the uh, 16 Mile Creek there right in downtown Oakville yeah um, so I had and my buddy Joe Natale of course he also mixed got me involved mixing the Toronto Pops so I did have some symphony orchestra experience. And also, Big and Rich, we did a July 4th with the Boston Pops down on the Potomac River for National Broadcast. And we did another Memorial Day with uh, the National Symphony on the West Lawn of the White House for broadcast. So, you know, I kind of got some really good exposure with some great engineers uh, doing that. So I went into the Alan Parsons project. I kind of uh, knew what to expect, but you're right. There is a whole different set of, um, uh, challenges involved with putting a rock or a pop act in front of, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 microphones. (laughs) Certainly. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. But Alan, uh, absolutely wonderful. Uh, a gentleman to work for, you know, him and his wife, and uh, the band was absolutely stellar. Again, it was a, one of those situations where, well, my job is just to stay out of the way. <laughs> yeah. some knobs and... Pull up the faders. <laughs> Excuse me, and push some faders up, you know. And that also got me into the Journey gig, the Alan Parsons gig. So you can see, again, the... Uh, 
you know, everything kind of ties itself together as far as recommendations, you know? Yeah, for sure. Which was also a, an absolutely spectacular gig. I mean, a 5 piece rock band, and they're, they're all fantastic musicians. Yeah. And you push the faders up, and they sound exactly like Journey, you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's nice when that happens, right? You There's something about when you've, you've heard the albums, and then you just turn up the faders, and it sounds like the album or sounds like journey and it's yeah. just like wow okay that's okay it's not this is not going to be as hard as i thought it's going to be <laughs> so how many how, how many uh how long did you do with uh with journey uh journey i did uh like four month stint yeah uh we did three weeks of rehearsals uh they really hired me to mix the south american tour uh, which was uh, a full month down in South America. Uh, and so we did three weeks of rehearsals. After the first week, we packed up your international touring stuff, put it into containers, shipped it down to South America, and then uh, rehearsed another two weeks with uh, the U.S. production, stuff that never leaves America. Yeah. Um, and then finished uh, those rehearsals, went straight into U.S. dates, um, and then uh, and then went down to South America uh, for a month for a whole bunch of countries. I think we started in Santiago, Chile, because I remember we went to see U2 at the soccer stadium. Oh, excellent. You know, the first day we were down there, yeah. uh, which was a lot of fun. Though That international experience uh, is really interesting. Like you mentioned, you know, you, you travel all over the place, and, and I think meeting uh, different crews, different countries, different ways of doing things... Um, it's challenging, but keeps you on your toes. But that that's fun. I mean, I like I like those type of challenges. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's also uh, one very important part of that. Uh, uh, most, of course, as a sound engineer, but more especially as a production manager, is uh, communication skills and uh, and learning how to um, get people to want to work for you. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, especially when uh, language is a barrier, which can be quite challenging, and uh, um, and, and also attitudes are a barrier. You know, yeah. um, there's always a lot uh, of that. Sometimes, yes, uh, absolutely. So I've always made it my business to go. Uh, above and beyond to treat everyone equally as far as uh, respect goes and, you know, never to yell at people, at least not in public and in front of other people, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, there, there is certainly a way to uh, get what you need. Um, and uh, I'm not saying you absolutely need to kill people with kindness, but I think uh, that honey certainly uh, draws a lot more than uh, the other, you know. Yeah, I always find... Uh, and I teach some guys that I'll send out on, on shows how important the very first meeting is, like that very first hello um, when you meet a new crew or a new venue or whatever you're doing. Because that really, for me, seems to set the pace. And if it starts off bad, you usually will stay bad. Um, but I always try to go in super i always try to prepare for what i'm going to say what i'm going to do before i go in uh if you know if it's a crew i've known for a while compared to someone brand new but i always find that something you know quick you know super kind of nice hello and some form of 
you know, kind of joke that you can lay out, something that, you know, maybe make them laugh. And then we're into business. Um, you know, quick hello. Let's, you know, let's have a quick laugh. And then let them know that you're ready to work. And it seems to, uh, seems to work right away. Even if you walk in and you're seeing issues right away, I think the worst thing is to start freaking out about what's there already, but just establish oh, yeah, a good yeah, relationship yeah, yeah. first and then address it. Then they'll, they'll, uh, I've seen so many people walk yeah. in and freak out before they even say hello. And then you're just like, okay, this is going to, this is going to be a bad day. Well, yeah. And therein lies the philosophy is, are you going to be part of the problem or are you going to be part of the solution? Yeah. I've always found it's better once you find issues to, before you do anything, is, is look for the uh, quickest possible resolution, and it's, you know, um, and, and and not make you know people feel out of uh, uh, you know, not put situation unnecessarily out of balance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because there's something wrong doesn't mean that it a can't be fixed and b can't be fixed in a professional and amicable manner. You know, exactly. No, or right. amiable manner. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back again. Uh, you were out with Alan Parsons, and uh, what was the uh, your next step uh, after that? Well, I did a. I did, I also did a year with the uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, which was absolutely fantastic. Oh, Last yeah. year was, or the year before, was their fiftieth anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was very delightful for a change, being the youngest person in the entire organization. <laughs> 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 yeah, which was uh, really cool, and uh, uh, and, uh, and then really after after Alan, uh, I think the next big thing was was starting on with the Lone Star, um, and oddly enough, I I didn't I had turned down that gig I think on two occasions previous to that. And I think it was mainly because the way they had their rig set up was that they mixed monitors from front of house. So one console and no monitor engineer. And uh, I didn't know that I was really um, interested in uh, dealing with that kind of a setup. And the gig was production manager as well. Uh, But then the, the opportunity presented itself when I needed to work. So I said, eh, you know what, I'll give it a try. Um, I spent an hour speaking with, uh, their previous, uh, front of house guy, made a bunch of notes. Um, I thought to myself, well, this really looks p- pretty straightforward. Got out, did the first gig. Everything was exactly the way he said it was and, uh, knocked it out of the park on the, on the first show. And that's oddly enough, also how I got my uh, country music hall of fame, uh, in there as a contract day one because their longtime LD, Alex Krompek, who'd been with them for almost 20 years, was retiring from the road oh, yeah. and uh, going to TD full-time at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And after that very first gig, he says, Martin, I need to get you in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally started working at the Hall of Fame later that year because, uh, you know, Lone Star was doing about 80 shows a year, which was quite consistent. Um, And that seemed to be a nice schedule for me because then I could work at the country the rest of the year, you know, and in in between that time, I also started working at the Franklin theater in the monitor exposition, something I really hadn't done much of since the nineties. 
Uh, and so when I left, uh, uh, after four years uh, of doing that, I, I decided it was time to start touring less. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's really where we are today. Uh, I mean, it was a lot of fun mixing. Uh, they put on a fantastic show, absolutely pro professional. I mean, no matter what happened, technically you would never know something was wrong coming off the stage. Yeah. You know, they just absolutely put on a consistently fantastic show. Um, so now I'm mixing uh, Billy Ray Cyrus of uh, Achy Breaky Heart fame and, of yeah. course, uh, Miley Cyrus's dad. Um, and they're a wonderful organization, fantastic people to work with, stellar band, um, you know, all the things you really want um, and not have to travel a crap ton, <laughs> too. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's funny because everyone thinks it, it's very luxurious being able to travel all over the world and do whatever. And, and then you just get to a point where, yeah, I want to do less of that. Cause it's just, it's too much. I mean, the amount of time you spend doing what you really, really enjoy compared to doing what you really don't like as much. Um, you know, if you could, you could flip those numbers, um, be behind the desk 80% of the time, 90% of the time, and travel and deal with the craft for 10% of the time, that would be all right. Um, but getting to the point and doing things that you, you like the most is it's the least amount of things you actually end up doing. So, uh, it, it's nice where you you're can, absolutely right. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it, it's funny when you, I thought about this many times for, you know, the, the amount of time you actually get to spend behind the console compared to everything else you do to get there. Um, the percentage is really super low um, compared to all that other stuff, but uh, it's still worth, you know, the battle once yeah, you get there. And we, we are two decades into the era of uh, multiple hat touring positions. Yeah. I mean, there are so many uh, tours where everyone is wearing multiple hats. Um, you're the tour manager and the front of house guy, you're the production manager and the front of house guy or the monitor guy, or you may be the front of house guy and the tour manager and the production manager, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the financial remuneration for, you, you would think off that, well, I should get paid three times as much. Well, yeah, you should. But in reality, that's, that's not actually the case. Um, so at, at some point, you know, doing one or two of those other jobs no matter how you slice it, it's going to take away from, you know, one or two of those things are going to suffer because of the other to some degree, you yeah. know? Yeah, totally. See Where that. are you willing to sacrifice? Yeah. So let's talk a bit about your approach to, um, uh, if we can get technical a little bit, your approach to, to mixing. Um, do you have, uh, Favorite consoles, first of all, you like to... Do you have a go-to console you like to use nowadays? Yeah, I, I guess I... Well, and budget's allowing, of course. Yeah. Um, I've been a long-time Avid user, um, and I think that's mainly from a, a, a workflow preference. Um, although there are other consoles I really enjoy mixing, uh you know, in, in the last several years, some, some manufacturers have released consoles that have, you know, I, I, in my opinion, raised the bar of live audio quality for, you know, touring sound systems such as uh, uh, 
the SSL L five hundred plus live series, absolutely unbelievably terrific sounding console. Um, when Avid released their uh, SXL a couple of years back, of course uh, Avid owns Euphonics, and when they went into the research and development for the the F six line, they had Euphonics design and build their uh, preamps and A to D converters. So. Uh, I think Abbott took their new line of consoles to a new level sonically. Yeah. Um, a little different, uh, similar workflow. The nomenclature is the same. The, the layout is a little different, but uh, the, certainly the sound quality has gone up. The Yamaha PM10, PM7 consoles, absolutely terrific, terrific uh, sounding consoles. Um I mean, the, those are the things I gravitate towards, too. And, in fact, Digital and even Soundcraft, uh, if we go back a little ways, doing all the console training, you know, in the first 10 years I was in Nashville, those opportunities, when I went out with One Republic, until the end of the year when we did our first U.S. headline tour, I was using advancing consoles of the day all around the world. Mm-hmm. So I had to have active console files for six different consoles at that time. Yeah. Um, and they had to all work when I got there. And it would be terrific when I showed up somewhere, you know, like at the V-Fest in the UK. And uh, I advanced a show with SSC Hire. And uh, my file was on the desk and ready or, or Summer Sonic in Tokyo or Osaka, Japan. You know, and my console file would be on the desk and ready to go when I got there. You know, and uh, festivals, most often you don't get a sound check unless you are the headliner. Yeah. So it's pretty much uh, a plug and pray, as we like to say. Um, Hit the ground running. uh, And uh, that just gave me uh, the ability to mix on just about every brand of consoles out there. Uh, I've never in my career been a console snob, uh, because really with very few exceptions, I've never been afforded the, uh, luxury of being able to say, what do you want? Yeah. What do you want? You know, so that kind of forces you to be flexible and, uh, the unintended consequences, you get fluent in multiple flavors of audio mixing ballots, exactly. you know? And so they, they, I think they each have their own pluses and minuses and flavors. And, you know, as I said, there are, there are certain ones I do gravitate towards. Yeah. I think once you get up to the, the top, you know, six consoles or seven or eight consoles, you know, like you said, oh. workflow is a little different, but if you can't make it work on any of those, um, then, you know, there's there's other issues um at just being able to comfortable just to kind of get yourself around and make it work but um it's not as if you're getting stuck yeah. with uh you know the pv mark three gets pulled out and you guys say go ahead and do it um well but. it's uh, you know i think it really boils down to uh your ability to mix uh, the flavor may be different but you should be able to come up with the same bowl of soup every time yeah. you know that's it was the same in analog days and it's the same in digital days you know if you've got uh, good inputs and confidence in your ability you should be able to twist some knobs push up some faders and arrive at a, a good end result yeah i agree with that but it does require talent on both ends of the snake as they say yeah it does yeah um what about uh 
are you much of a plug-in guy? Um, is there anything that you, you'd like to go to that you're using live all the time now? That's, uh, or, well, uh, sure. Plugins are absolutely the mainstay of our industry now. Uh, I own a lot of plugins, uh, not as many as some, but fundamentally, I have always been a minimalist. Yeah. Um, and that is to say, uh, if you don't need it, don't use it. You know, if you can mix it, don't fix it. Yeah. You know. Um, other, other than, uh, well, fortunately, and we're in an era where I can get settings and signal chains off the engineer notes from a recording and mixing proper yeah. process too. So, you know, to a large degree in, in the, in the biggest level, highest level of touring, even, uh, that's uh, readily available and accessible. So I can either emulate, which is my job. I'm a copycat, right? Yeah. I go for what's on the record first, unless I'm directed otherwise, which sometimes is also the case. Um, so you have to be flexible. But plugins, um, I do like some of the vintage comps. Uh, and uh, I think uh, C6, as far as dynamic EQ, is a very good one. Yep, um, you know, as far as basic things to have, it works in a number of different ways. You can use it as a de-esser, a de-boomer. Uh, dynamic EQ, of course, you can use it on an input. You can use it on output yep. in place of uh, uh, equalization, which works uh, wonderfully. Yeah, I do the same thing. Um, I, use I that mean, I own all kinds of bundles. I've got the SSL bundle, the API bundle. I've got the CLA Chris Lord Algae bundle. I've got, you know, I've got plenty of tools to, to use whatever I might need. Uh, to get uh, where I need to go uh, for any one uh, result. And I think the approach is slightly de different depending on the music, style of music. Yeah, for sure. Now, your gig... Yeah, depending uh, on what you're going to use in the signal chain. Yeah, for sure. Your gig at the uh, Hall of Fame there, What you're probably doing all different types of uh, events there. Um, maybe talk about what's involved with that gig. Well, interestingly enough, to start with, there are seven different venues uh, at the Trinity Hall of Fame and Museum. Um, we'll go start from the biggest. The CMA Theater uh, is a full-on uh, soft-seat theater with two balconies. Um, there's about 30 delays in there, four hangs of D&D V-Series, a VHV-12s, two main hangs, two out hangs, and 35 delay speakers around the room. Um, all top-of-the-line equipment. Uh, the Hall of Fame ha is largely Avid-equipped, but not completely, yeah. uh, from a console point of view. I think that's mainly because, uh, you know, Avid, for the last decade and a half, has been, you know, on the top uh, list uh, most commonly asked for consoles for, you know, I mean, I think that's split up between Digico and Yamaha nowadays. Yeah. However, uh, still one of the commonly most requested consoles. So I think it was a good idea to put in, you know, for house stuff. I and mean, we have the event hall, we have a JBL Vertec rig in there. Um, that place holds up to a, a thousand people. It's more like a banquet room, but it's absolutely the best view in town. It's a, uh, 18 or 20 foot glass all the way down one side of the building, wow. which you would think would be an acoustic nightmare. However, it's 
angled away from the stage, yeah. overlooking downstairs. So some of the ref- many of the reflections get locked up in the ceiling, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, the conservatory, the Ford Theater, is a smaller soft theater with a permanent install. Uh, the the uh, conservatory is the main entrance to the building, which is the most acoustically challenged. It's all glass, steel, concrete, and wood. Nice. Um, everything from weddings to corporate events to concerts to uh, songwriter instrumentation demos, um, just every facet of the spectrum. We just last week in the theme there we had our local three come through. Um, this week, uh, oh, who's coming in? So, in fact, I do everything from full-on concerts to full-on corporates uh, for TV broadcast. Uh, and, you know, with labs, lecterns, mics, headsets, uh, streaming feeds, uh, monitors, front of house to a corporate dinner where I babysit an iPod for three hours, yeah. <laughs> two speakers on sticks. Yeah, you know. Uh, and and everything in between. In fact, last week I mixed uh, Richie McDonald's solo on a uh, historical artifact, a nine-foot uh, chicory grand piano upstairs in the BMI Hall uh, for a private corporate uh, event. Um, and actually tomorrow morning I'll be uh, talking uh, to students there, uh, that, which is an educational a part of the education program there, I'll be uh, teaching, uh, talking to the ones uh, interested in live audio production, which incidentally, uh, education is another thing I've been involved with uh, for, I guess, almost uh, 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 at the, I got, I've been lecturing at the Blackbird Academy here in Nashville since 2015, so coming up on five years there. Um, I've been involved with Truth and Audio, and I also the, the, the Hall of Fame also has in its own entire educational department in house. So tomorrow morning I'll be teaching or uh, talking to the kids about uh, live sound. Um, so it's a little bit of the giving back part of the program, you know. Yeah, which is really nice. I think you. I was talking about this the other day. I think you just get to a certain age too, where it's just as much fun to to give back and and teach others as it is to do it yourself and and uh it's a nice nice part and nice section of your life to get get to and uh i think it's an important thing to do it makes you know you want other guys and other gals to you know keep things moving and and get them interested so uh, it's, it's great that yeah, you're doing that yeah so uh well, i was very fortunate at different times in my career to you know, work with people who had no secrets and were willing to ask, answer questions, take the time, because I've always been the not afraid to ask questions guy, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's important. So I wanted to ask you as well, do you, do you look down the road, uh, five, 10 years and, and have a plan to where you want to be or, uh, or you just kind of take it things as it, as they go? Well, I mean, at this point, uh, certainly I'd uh, like to retire at some point. Um, I've never really been a big vacationer. Yeah. Um, virtually through the mo- the bulk of my adulthood, vacation was one of those words that was uh, somewhat foreign to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's just me personally. Yeah. So I'm not a guy who's going to go somewhere to sit on a beach 
for a week. My idea of a vacation would be going to Machu Picchu in Peru, the city in the clouds, you know what I mean? And taking the train right up the mountains and hiking miles up to see that. That'd be that'd be my idea of a vacation. So, yeah, maybe to go back and visit some of the places that I was not able to see the cool things they're famous for, yeah. you know. Um, I think, uh, you know, learn, I think I've learned... I think I've achieved a very good balance in my life at this stage of the game. Um, so I think for the time being, I'm going to go with a good balance for as long as I can. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know? Do you have, you know, because, yeah. I was going to ask, uh, I've been liking to ask uh, different folks on the podcast uh, who perform out and travel all over the place. Do you have any uh, venues that you haven't done sound at or done a show at that you've always wanted to do that it's on your bucket list? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose I do. Um, I mean, I've certainly done some terrific ones, but not all of them. Um, I've been to, uh, I've been to Red Rocks, but, uh, due to the, but I've never actually mixed a show there, but I think I'm okay with not necessarily having to mix a show there because that's one of the more logistically challenging shows, uh, on the, on the, uh, in the tour book as it were. But I think I'd like to mix a show at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. Um, another, I don't know if you know Bernie Broderick or not. Do you know Bernie? No, I don't. Uh, he's another, uh, successful Canadian, um, he's constantly, he's, uh, when he left to Canada, he went, uh, to the States as a national training director for, uh, L acoustics yeah. was a VDOS trainer for a number of years and then went to, uh, EAW, um, and was there a national training guy for, I think a, close to a decade now. And he's, he's since, uh, moved on to starting his own uh, mobile, uh, live audio education program called truth and audio. But Bernie actually was uh, a part of the design team when he was still with L Acoustics uh, that designed and hung the current configuration of uh, L Acoustics that's hanging at the Hollywood Bowl, yeah. which is quite a big feather in in a cap, I would think. I would think so, yeah. So I'd love to mix that venue. Um, you know, I've been in most of all the stadiums, many, not all the theaters, but many of them, and a lot of the arenas and... Uh, you know, uh, some of the big festivals, legendary festivals in the UK and Europe, I've mixed at all of those and, um, lots of TV shows and cool national broadcast things. I mean, I've been really lucky, Yeah, you know, very, 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 lucky. very lucky. What's your favorite type of venue uh, or slash gig to do sound compared, you know, obviously we, we just went through a whole list of outdoor uh, concerts at a festival to arenas to theaters to you know small intimate clubs to all those different things what would be your if you only had to do uh, one type of gig what what would you gravitate yourself to I think acoustically friendly soft seat theaters mm-hmm. are is one I do like outside uh, excluding meteorological <laughs> I like outside because there's, you know, a lot less reflections. So you, you can really do a lot more in depth mixing outside. Yeah. Um, it's nice. Certainly with, uh, 
things like reverb, which are not necessarily greatly required in the many of the acoustic environments we're subjected to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can certainly outside. Uh, um, you have way more options to to create the mix you you really want, especially on a nice cooler summer evening. I find that it's just dandy for for mixing. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and certainly. Uh, you know, uh, exactly being outside and the size of the crowd, you know, biggest crowds I've ever mixed for other than via a, uh, a satellite feed are, you know, outdoor, you know, festivals and concerts. Yeah, certainly, uh, you get a lot of energy from the crowd as well, cause you're right in the heart of everything. So that's, uh, very exciting as well. Uh, well, you've, you've certainly had, an amazing uh, career so far, and I know it's uh, uh, you're doing lots of very interesting things. I follow you on Facebook and see where you're popping up all the time and different gigs you're doing. And it's always super interesting. And and uh, uh, you know, I remember fondly uh, uh, hanging out with you uh, a bunch of times up here in Canada. And and uh, it's nice that we could. It's it's one of those things where it's just like being musicians or anyone in the entertainment business. You can not see someone for quite a while, but you can, doesn't take long to catch up. Um, once you've, uh, you know, reconnect again. So that's, uh, uh, appreciate you. Oh yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll never forget the time you invited me to your studio and, uh, gave me the tour of your studio. And then also your own private surround fabric, <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I used to be really into that, that stuff, but, uh, still got the studio and, uh, uh, keep upgrading all the time and uh, just don't find myself in here as much as I want to be. Um, but, sure. uh, you know, life kind of takes you and wherever you're busy, that's where you end up going. So uh, as you know, you never know what's around the corner. So, uh, but I do miss time in the studio. Uh, um, used to be a big part of my life, but not as much anymore. But I, I like to, I think more in my retirement years, um, settle back into that land a bit more. A lot of fun. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And you're about to go out back out on the road yourself, aren't you, this week? Yeah, real soon. I'm out uh, across Canada in a new show. I'm um, promoting up here, and uh, then I'm uh, getting the Red Green tour started. I'm out for a little bit on that. Um, I just kind of out there to kind of get things rolling, and then then I have another fellow who who takes over that tour. And um, uh, but yeah, and I have my our family has our theater here, so we do about 120 shows here in the summer. So my, uh, my summer is very busy. And, um, so yeah, always something to do, something more to learn. And I'm, I'm much like you. I, you know, I'm constantly wanting to learn and, and keep myself updated as much as possible. And, um, you know, I, I find I spend most of my time now just kind of still researching and, and looking out what's new and, um, trying to educate myself. Uh, on, on everything as much as possible. I, I find that as much fun as sitting down and watching TV. So, um, Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's time. I figure when, when this sponge t- uh, dries up time to retire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. It, it's, and it's great now because, uh, there's so many great things via internet that you can watch and, and hang out. And I just like watching other people do their craft and, and, um, you know, you always learn, um, uh, from, from somebody what they do, um, you know, something what to do. And sometimes you learn what not to do. And, um, but I think that 
that's available way more now than just being able to, you know, you get before you used to be able to sit and watch somebody mix after you or something or before you and, and, uh, at a gig and you pick up little things and you're asked questions like you always, you said, um, but now you can hop online and kind of watch all these great little seminars and watch how people use their plugins and say, Oh, I never thought about using it that way. Or, um, uh, you know, it's, it's super interesting. You can really keep yourself very knowledgeable nowadays, which I, I super enjoy a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, same here. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I know I've taken a bunch of your time and, uh, I appreciate, uh, this phone call. Hopefully, uh, I'll be in Nashville again soon and we can connect and, and hang out and uh, love to oh, chat. I'd love and, to come out and see you in your environment. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you're up here, let me know too and uh, we'll try to connect and uh, be really great. Now, everyone, anyone out listening wanting to touch base and say hello or follow what you're doing, what's the best way for people to uh, to do that? Well, I think uh, to look me up on uh, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, uh, any of those places, you can certainly uh, find me there um, very easily. F-R-E-Y, Martin Fry, the audio guy. There you go. That's the easiest way. We'll make sure everyone uh, reach out and uh, say hello to Martin. And uh, it's been a great conversation and learned a bunch thanks of so things. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again. Well, and thank uh, you. Yeah, I look uh, forward to seeing you again. And uh, our mutual friend, Mike Holder, there, make sure you say hello and um uh, missing that guy a lot. So um, hopefully I'll get down to your neck of the woods soon and we can all hang out and grab a beer. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm.